Okay, so this week, and sorry, we don't have anything up there. The Torah portion is called Ketitzi, and it means when you go out. And it, if you start reading, it's Deuteronomy 21, starting in verse 10 to 25, 19. And that's the first verse is when you go out to war. So this is when you go out. And it's, uh, it's that section in Deuteronomy, Isaiah 54, uh, 1 through 10, and Matthew 24, 29 through 42. And you might recognize Matthew 24 from the, you know, he asked, the disciples asked, well, <laughs> when will the end of the, you know, end of the days be? And his response is in, is right there, actually. So it's an interesting section. Um, this Torah portion discusses 74 of the commandments. <laughs> so it's, and remember, the context is Moses is telling the people, he's repeating the instructions the Lord gave him just before he sets them free to go into the promised land. So this section has 74 of the commandments and instructions and it covers uh, personal matters, civic matters, domestic matters, charitable, ma charitable matters, uh, farming matters, general instructions, all sorts of things. And so it, it starts when you go out to war and then it says, if you, your eye falls on a beautiful captive woman and you want to take her to wife. So that's how the section starts. And it's all instructions on how you should act. So <clears throat> Moses is recapping all the instructions, judgment, statutes of the Lord. And it's kind of interesting, you know, men in, in war and women don't usually uh, turn out so well because they've been at war and there's no women around and you know they're all adrenaline up and all that. So that's this is one of these things that makes the Bible different than just about any book is the Lord recognizes the fact that there's a problem here. You know, and instead of saying don't do that, he responds with this, "Okay, look, I know you're going to do this. So if you're going to do this, then let's at least do this right. Let's do this. And so he gives instructions on how. If you see this beautiful captive woman, you can take her to wife, but you have to do these things. So it's the it, it's kind of a way to harness the evil inclinations of man. And it's another one of these things that is permitted by God, but not necessarily recommended. You know, if you, he'll, he'll let you do this if you really want to do this. And there's a number of things that he will let you do, like the 12 spies. We just read about the 12 spies. You know, if you remember, Moses went to the Lord and the Lord said, well, you send them because I'm not. You know, this isn't you. You can go ahead and do that if you want but I'm not in this. And it's the same thing when they said, we want a king to be like all the other nations. And he said, well, okay, if you really want, but it's, and it's, we'll talk about that in this section. <laughs> Divorce is the same way. You, you can, you know, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you divorce, but it's not the best for you. And I think the reason, or maybe one of the reasons, I mean, certainly, the first reason is he knows we're going to do these things anyway. So he wants to try to harness our evil inclinations a little bit, make us 
think this whole thing through and figure out how to how to do all this the right way. But the other thing is he lets us do these things so we can see what we want isn't what we need. You know, we he says, okay, go ahead and do it, but you're not gonna like it. And always in scripture, I mean always, we don't like it. It turns out badly for us, even though he permitted it. So this is one of those things <clears throat> that he permitted if you do the following things. And he said, you have to bring her back to your house and you can't, you have to give her 30 days to grieve over the loss of, you know, whatever, her family or country or house or whatever. She has to shave her head, trim her nails, uh, remove her garments from wherever it was she was living and embrace the whole thing about Israel and God and, you know, get rid of her idols and all that stuff. So this concept of bringing her home, you can imagine how that would probably go over at home. Yeah, Look what I found at war, honey. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you have to do these things. And if you follow all the commandments of the Lord and do all these things, then you can take her to wife, which was what your desire was 30 days previous or more to that. And the idea is her hair is now shaved, her nails are trimmed, she's got regular clothing on, you know, no makeup, no exciting stuff, because what one of the things that you wouldn't necessarily get from scripture, well, you, you would if you looked at it close enough, is uh, it was common for the women of the country that Israel was attacking, or I assume any country, um, that they would dress up in what's called shiny clothes. It's the same word from Nakash, you know, which is shiny brass mirror. It's that same word, which is the word for serpent or the, you know, the enemy in the garden. So they dress up in these Nakash clothes to catch the eye of the attacker. Or some people might think to catch the eye of their guy who's going off to war to, re you know, remember this, you know. But they, they dress in this, I don't know if provocative is the right word, but that put them in the best possible light. So presumably they had all their makeup and earrings and fine clothes on and, you know, naturally they were beautiful and the guy sees them and, oh my gosh, this is, you know, I'm sure my wife won't mind. And so he brings her home and then puts her in regular clothes, cuts off her hair, takes all her makeup and jewelry and all that stuff. And I think the hope would be that, well, all of a sudden it's not quite as appealing. Plus, it's been 30 days. He's now at home. The wife's probably given her input. And it's not that an attractive deal as he thought it was. So he's, so the Bible or Moses will go ahead and say, okay, after that 30 days, then you have to make a decision. You're either going to take her to wife or you're going to let her go. You can't keep her as a slave, as a servant. You can't make her work for you because you took her. You either have to cut her totally free and let her be, be free and go wherever she wants to go or make her your wife. And it's not, there's no record of how often either one of those things happened. So I can't say, you know, 30% of the time they kept her. <clears throat> but you can, you can sort of envision how that would all go. And after 30 days, the, the luster is gone. off of that apple. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So that's how this section starts. And that's kind of what it is, is it's just 
uh, it's it's information, it's instructions. It's this is how this is what your life would look like if you were to live as a child of God. You wouldn't act like all the other countries and all the other nations and all the other people. You would do things this way. So it goes from there into a section on the firstborn. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it talks briefly about the firstborn has you know, the firstborn has rights. They get a double portion of the inheritance. And the, the point of this is your firstborn is your firstborn. Even if it's to what the Bible says is your hated wife versus the wife you love. And typically that's not thought of hate like we might think of hate. It's the less loved wife versus the more loved. You know, Rachel and Leah uh, like that. So if your firstborn happens to be born, and there are some Jewish commentaries that I, I think maybe tongue-in-cheek say your firstborn will always be born to the hated wife because that's just how things work. So your firstborn is your firstborn regardless of which wife or concubine she's born to. And you can't do anything about that. It's, those are his rights and he gets a double portion and there's nothing you can do to change that. But there's something he can do. The firstborn can't have his ta rights taken away, but he can lose them. And you think about Reuben, who was the firstborn. He lost his status as the firstborn because of the sins he committed. You think of the golden calf. The firstborn were designed by the Lord to be the priests and lead the people. And those were the people dancing around the golden calf. So they lost their rights of the firstborn and it went to the Levites who stood aloof of those people. You think of Esau and I mean there's any number of firstborns that through their actions wound up losing their status as the firstborn. But the point of the, the rule is there's nothing you can do as the father to change the fact that the firstborn is the firstborn. You can claim he's not, you can say he's you know from the wrong wife, you can dislike the guy, it doesn't matter. He is unless he blows it. So then it goes to the rebellious son, which is kind of a fun one, because you probably know, you've heard or read or had people yell at you about, well, the Torah says if your son is rebellious, you can stone him to death. And I'm sure you could ask my dad, there were those days when that probably would have seemed like the best option. <laughs> And I certainly had those days as well. You've probably had them. Um, not with me. Not with, yeah. Firstborn son is, you know, the rebellious son. Um, and a lot of people will use that to argue the case. A lot of Christians will use that to argue the case that the, that the Old Testament, the Torah, the Tanakh is, you know, oh, it's not for us today. Because you read that and it just reads wrong. I mean... You can stone your own son because he's rebellious. And obviously, that's, um, that's not the point. You know, and if you go back to Matthew 13 and, and Jesus said, you know, he was asked, why do you teach the rabble, those people, the outsiders, why do you teach them with parables? And he said, well, they don't, they don't know. To you, the, the wisdom of the mystery of God has been given, but to them it has not. So I have to teach them in parables. And that's what this is so or that's what a lot of this stuff is so when people come to you and say oh the Torah you know look look you can kill your own son it's like really have you even read the book that's not at all what it means it's like people always say an eye for an eye 
Yeah, well, and that's in here. And, and there's a, you know, there's a use for that, but ha the, did it ever happen? I mean, did they ever right. do that? And, and if you read you on... You have excuse to get revenge on someone. Right, exactly, exactly. That's and you can't do that. Wrong. That's right. So if you continue reading on about the rebellious son, in order for you to stone your rebellious, you just can't do it because you're mad and he's been a jerk. You have to take him to the priests and the elders and explain your case and they have to examine the child and then the elders and the priests and the, basically the congregation of Israel has to come together and say, oh yeah, we got to stone that one. Well, that never happened in the history of Israel. It's never recorded as happening. But the picture is rebellion leads to death. That's what they just said, right? You can stone her. Well, if you go through, um, and I, I have a list of probably 15 that I didn't bother to print up because uh, I don't think I have to. You get this. There's a list of, I can't tell you how many verses, that call the children of Israel rebellious. They are rebellious children. Well, what's the response? I mean, rebellion brings death. Well, what's that all about? You know, so we understand the rebellion against God brings death. We've all rebelled. Israel has rebelled. And yet we're not dead. Why? Because the Lord intervened. And that's this whole purpose of the rebellious son in Scripture is that the nation of Israel, and that would include any of us, deserves death for our rebellion. And we are not dead because the Lord has intervened and offered us salvation. He's offered to cleanse us. Exactly. So you get those people who say, oh, that's why I don't believe the Torah. It, they're missing the entire point. And there's a number of these in this very Torah portion that are the same way. You just kind of look at the people and, I mean, I roll my eyes. I would expect you guys not to do that and have more compassion. But it's like, really? Just read the book. That's not what it says. I mean, that's what it says on the surface, but you have to, you have to go a little past that. Okay. Then one of the next ones that people get all wiggy about, and this follows the rebellious son, is parents should love God more than their children. And that creates some issue. Um, but I mean, it's true. We should love God more than our children. And the way that the um, rabbis view this is that to follow God, you need to have a higher level of spirituality than the normal nations or the normal societies around you. You have to think things differently and you have to understand who God is and that these children are his children. And of course you have to love him more. You know, it, it all makes sense. I would suggest that we're in the mess we're in and we're towards the end of the book for this very reason, that the parents and the many parents in the 50s and 60s indulged their children. You didn't indulge me so much. And now the children have grown up and they reject everything the parents stood for because they were indulged. They were the focus of all the attention. They got all the time and the money and all that stuff. So then it goes into a section on uh, criminals and being hung on a tree. And it explains a little bit about when you commit a crime in Israel, there's a procedure to follow. They didn't really have jails. So you took your punishment kind of right there, which was either through uh, whipping or 
paying something back or you know you it didn't it didn't linger on and then occasionally the crime was so severe the person uh, had to be killed that was their punishment was to die and in uh, Israel there were four ways you could kill a person stoning uh, burning uh, strangling and something else but you didn't hang a person like we do today. You know, you didn't break their neck per se. But after they were dead, they were to be hung on a tree. And there's, you know, you can, you can make the case, you can put this together in your own mind, I'm sure. <coughs> Jesus, bless you, was hung on a tree and, and all that. But anyway, the, the convicted felon, if you want to call him that, would be killed, and this happened a, Apparently, once every seven years or so, someone did something worthy of the death penalty and was actually put to death. So it was fairly infrequent. But then it required that after the body was dead, you would hang him from a tree to show, you know, the general public and the people. That, yeah, advertise. This is, don't do this, you know. <clears throat> but the reality is, the way a Jew or somebody following the scripture looks at a felon who's been killed for his crime or any of these guys. I mean, if you've convicted of a crime and you've received 39 <coughs> lashes or you've received whatever it is, you it could be two lashes. It just depends on what the crime was and what they determined the punishment to be. So you've, you've got someone who's convicted of a crime, committed a crime, convicted of it, has to pay his punishment. He pays his punishment as soon as he's paid his punishment, he's no longer a criminal. He's your brother again. So this idea of hanging him on the tree, after he's dead, he becomes your brother again. So he's not just this convicted felon, this throwaway person. He's back to being your brother again. So they're supposed to hang him on a tree, but he's your brother. So you don't really want to do that. So what they would do is they'd wait till late in the afternoon, hang him on the tree, and then... When night came, you had to take him down. Because if you left him up overnight, the animals, you know, it's kind of gross, would do what animals do, which would spread the defilement throughout the camp. So you can't leave him up overnight. And you're supposed to hang him up as, as advertisement and warnings, but he's your brother. So they would wait until late in the afternoon, hang him up for a little bit, and then take him back down because night was coming. So everything was, was uh, you know, done the way it was supposed to be. But it's just interesting that we, we get that in America. Oh, he's paid his debt to society. And I don't think any of us look at a convicted felon as, uh, you know, it's like, well, dude, you're still, you know, it's not like your slate is clean. But biblically, it is clean because you've paid the price for whatever it is you've done. Either you've paid the cash or the donkeys or you've taken the, <clears throat> the punishment, whatever it is. And so we are to look at them as brothers again and, and afford them all the same rights and uh, things that they had before. <clears throat> we tend not to do that, I would suggest. Uh, then we go into a section that more or less exposes our heart. There's a whole bunch of uh, <clears throat> uh, statutes and commandments and Torahs and, or uh, judgments and stuff <clears throat> that kind of indicate that we are actually our brother's keeper you know and there's a series of things if your if your neighbor's camel wanders off 
and you see it, you're not supposed to pretend like you didn't see it. You're supposed to go out and get it and take it back to your neighbor. And if your neighbor is gone, then you're supposed to keep it and feed it and ma maintain it until your neighbor gets back. And if you do anything different than that, it's considered theft. And you could be charged with the, the crime of stealing your neighbor's camel. But there's a whole series of uh, instructions that I would just say expose our heart <clears throat> like that. Just simple day-to-day -day stuff about how you should act and how you should think about your brother and about your neighbor. And it doesn't say you need to return your camel unless your, your, your neighbor's you know, a real jerk, then you don't have to do it. It just says this is how you should act towards all people. And most of these commandments that you'll read, or a lot of them anyway, are not specific to interaction with your brothers. They're interaction with all people. They could be strangers, they could be your neighbors, they could be your family, they could be your enemies. There are ways that you are to conduct yourself, and again, expose your heart, um, if, if you want to follow the things of the Lord. And this is, again, Moses is laying these things out so you would be able to identify not only are your neighbors with the program, but are you with the program? And most things in Scripture are not about them. I mean, they are about them, but they're about you first. You have to pull a you, look at the plank in your brother's eye. And, and, and this is the same thing. There's a series of, do you act this way or not? You know, you should act that you should act this way from your heart. If you see someone in need, you need to deal. You just do and then worry about the rest of it later. And they'll get into actually more of those later. <clears throat> then here's another one of these. Oh, we don't believe the Torah because it says women can't wear pants. Uh-huh. Except it doesn't say that. What it says is women shall not wear that which pertains to the man. And somehow... Uh, various groups and whatnot have concluded that that means women shouldn't wear pants. And you see all Jewish women wearing dresses and Mennonites and Amish and all that stuff wearing dresses. And they get that kind of from this. But Moses wrote this. Moses wasn't wearing blue jeans. He was wearing a robe or a dress, right? So if anything, it's the other way around. Women should you know it, you don't you don't want to have men dressing in dresses anymore it's just this picture that you get of women not wearing pants and i don't know how so many denominations and, and groups have come to that conclusion that's not what it means at all it says the woman shouldn't shouldn't usurp the things of a man shouldn't adopt the man's character. Women were created as women. Men were created as men. Men do certain things. Women do certain things. Both can do either, but some are better and more attuned at some things. You know, I mean, Deborah led the army in war. That you, the women can do that if they have to, but that's not their design. The Lord wants the men and the women to be the people he created them to be. And when they're acting that way and they come together, then it creates exactly the situation that the Lord wants. And somehow this got twisted to women can't wear pants. 
And it, you know, if you ever run into anybody like that, ask them who wrote that, and they will probably know it was Moses, and ask them what Moses was wearing. Because everyone wore a robe at that time. There weren't dresses and pants, and you know, it has nothing to do with clothes again. It's somebody reading the Bible and just taking the words for what they might mean in English today. It's not looking at the bigger picture of what scripture uh, has to say. In fact, this we've talked before about the word Hayah, which means uh, to exist. It's the word that Yahweh comes from. This is the same word is used here that the woman should not Hayah become a man. And that in today's, you know, in to, oh man, no kidding. In today's world, that's, you don't have a manhole cover anymore. <laughs> what is it, a person hole cover? <laughs> it's a utility. They changed it in California. Oh, yeah, a utility yeah, access utility, cover or something. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, and again, that's you know goes back to don't indulge your children because then your children will reject everything you stand for. And that's what's happened, especially in California. You know, they have been indulged for generations and now they're just useless. So men are created as men, women are created as women. They're designed to function in a particular role in a particular capacity. Either can function in both, but neither is good at, at the opposite. So all this is saying is let's not create an environment where these things, you know, where women and men don't matter, where it's unisex or doesn't. And I'm not saying, you know, not equal pay for equal work. That's not what it's saying at all. But they are different jobs. They're just designed differently. And that's the way we should, we should leave it. There are verses. The next one is do not take uh, the mother with the young. We're going to eat animals. We have to eat animals. But we need to respect the animals. And there's several in here that will teach that. You know, we just... You don't want to take a mother from or a young from its mother. Wait, there's other animals out there. You know, don't take them both together. And the implication is they're God's creatures. They have feelings and, you know, just like we do. He created them for us to, and we have dominion over them. But that's, you know, dominion is it means we can do with them what we want. But what we want is should we should have we should respect them and use them. You know, certainly as, as we need, but respect them. Don't treat them just like they're nothing. Um, here's, here's one of these other ones that we talk about all the time. If you have a flat roof, it says put a guardrail around it. Because if someone were to fall off of your roof, guess what? That's your fault. The guy may be a, you know, a clumsy oaf and fell off. Or in those days, a lot of times you would sleep on your roof because it was cooler. There were... I mean, the roofs were flat. You would do a lot of things on your roof. The second floor was where often they did washing. You know, there's a number of things that they did. You well, recognize... Sleepwalking. Yeah. Well, exactly. So you want to put a parapet around that thing so your sleepwalking guest doesn't fall off. And it just goes back to the same idea of respect. You need to respect your family, your guests, your animals, the strangers, the foreigners, even your enemies, even criminals. You know, we didn't get into too much of this last week. But criminals uh, were, had a certain amount of respect. You had to do things in a certain order. You just couldn't willy-nilly treat them any way you wanted to. 
there was a there was a protocol and you had to follow it otherwise you would be guilty of something and it doesn't expunge whatever it is they did but still they had certain rights just because they were children of God you know and you should respect that uh, there's a common theme in scripture about not mixing and we've talked about that before the idea of you know westward where light mixes with darkness and things become indistinct we go through uh, in this section there are three examples of not mixing don't mix seed, don't mix animals, don't mix fabric. And you're thinking, well, gosh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So it, you know, it says if you mix the seed in your vineyard, you may get this and you may get that. But because they're different and mixed, what you've done is you've consecrated them all to destruction. You have to throw them all away or donate them all. You can't, if you want to grow corn and soybeans and you know grapes you do it in a, in different fields you don't do it all at once together and again it doesn't matter for for us it wouldn't matter you know you go through it it would be harder of course and pick and eat and whatever it doesn't make any difference in that regard really but it's the picture that it's portraying you cannot mix you can't take the things of the world and mix them with the things of god the ideas of of uh, scripture are to be set apart from the ideas of the world and what you think common sense is. Um, you can't mix animals and it gives you the example of the ox and the donkey. Don't use them, you know, don't yoke them together. And later Jesus will say the same thing. Um, don't be unequally yoked because it says the stronger animal will pull down the weaker animal. And that's pretty much the same reason you don't want to be unequally yoked. If you're not pulling the same, one of them is going to wind up on the ground and the other one's not. It says don't mix fabric, which is an interesting one. It says don't mix your wool and your linen. And you probably know if you mix fabrics like that together and make a garment, as you wash it, it shrinks and, and they don't shrink at the same rate. So you'll rip it. So it won't, won't be either, either one of them won't be any good. But the bigger picture of that is, you know, wool comes from animals and linen comes from plants. So if you take this all the way back to Cain and Abel in the original offering, Cain made his offering of plants. Abel made his offering of, of blood, of animals. So the wool was accepted, the linen wasn't accepted. And you go through uh, this whole deal with Cain and Abel and wool and linen and animals and, and offerings and all that. And you get the idea of wool and flock and Abel and spirit and linen and uh, uh, plants and Cain and the world. And so it's saying again for the third time, don't mix the things of the world and the spirit. And that's, you know, pretty obvious. All these things should be mutually exclusive. You take the things of the Lord and you take the things of the world and they should never mix. So you know what to do with those things and what to do with these things. It becomes interesting when you start thinking about the wool and the linen because the priests wore linen. And if you go back to Cain and Abel, Cain was the one with the linen. Linen is the idea of carnality. Wool is the idea of spirituality. 
So this whole concept of the priests having to wear these linen garments, and that's what Jesus was wrapped in, the spargano, the used linen garments from the priests, and that's what the candlesticks burned and all that. You kind of get this uh, sort of foggy notion that carnality infests the priesthood. So it, it again becomes up to you and I because the priests may tell us whatever the priests may tell us. And that's where we were last week. Even if the priests make a bad judgment, you have to follow them because unity is more important than the particular error of an individual priest. And Jesus said, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Don't live like they do. Live this way. Watch you know, and know and learn my testimonies and live that way. So you sort of get a backdoor uh, view of this same sort of idea. The priests are the representatives of God in the tabernacle and they're supposed to do all this stuff. And yet they're wearing linen and not wool. So they're dressed in a way that should remind you of carnality to begin with. So it's, again, it's up to you. Everything in scripture always comes back. It should really start there. It shouldn't come back there. It's for you. And once you get this figured out, then you go about your life in the world and you, um, you know, you become that person that people look at and, oh, I want to, I want to be like that. I want to do those things. I want to be, you know, that way. So after that, there's this just one verse sort of stuffed in the middle, no explanation whatsoever. It just says, we are to wear the twisted cord at the four corners of our garment. The zitzi, except it's called uh, halel or something. Something, I can't even pronounce it. We call it tzitzi usually. In this particular verse, it's not called that, but it sort of means the same thing. So in all of these commandments, statutes, and instructions the Lord is giving, this is just slipped right in one sentence. It just says we are to wear the twisted cord at the four corners of our garments. And then it moves on. And again, we know, we, we've known in the past, we've read before, that the tzitzit is put on your garments to help you remember, to help you function in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And that's, a, you know, it's like my mezuzah on the door. It's, it's the purpose is to remind us of course, you put the zitzi or the mezuzah on the door, you go somewhere, and us being human, it takes about 18 seconds to forget that we're supposed to be behaving, you know, like the mezuzah or like the words in the mezuzah or like the Lord would have. So the zitzi is something that's supposed to be with us all the time that we can't really, uh, it would get in your way all the time. It would be in your face. I mean, it would hang on your garments. But it's there all the time. Every time you reach in and get your wallet or your car keys or a you know, tight corner between the chair and the table, it's there. It's always there. And it's there to remind you that you're different. You're supposed to be, you know, you're, you're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be set apart. You're supposed to be Kodesh, holy, different than the rest of the world. So then it launches into a section on wives and adultery. And it's... Um, sort of a longish section for this Sidra on um, various things about wives and 
if they commit adultery, if the uh, husband thinks they committed adultery, if they, all this stuff, and, and it's all these rules and regulations and technical things, and if they do this, then you have to do that, and the parents have to do this, and then this will happen to them, and, and I don't know, maybe that stuff, you know, did happen occasionally and did have to go to court and all that. But the larger picture of this whole marriage and sex thing is a virgin and an adulterer. You can only be one or the other. <clears throat> so it goes back to, well, what's the larger picture? You know, God's bride, who presumably is us, will be a virgin. Okay, that's good. But we're not. We're adulterous because we've mixed and mingled with the things of the world. So how do we get from being this adulterous wife to this virgin bride? And again, it's that same picture of we can't. Job says, who can make a clean thing out of the unclean? Nobody can except the Lord. We have to trust in the Lord to do what it is the Lord does. And if he loves us, he will provide the avenue and the opportunity for us to change our adulterous nature into the virgin bride nature. And so it, <clears throat> the scripture takes a fair amount of um, space, not just here, but in different places, to describe all of the different ramifications and pictures of being an adulterous wife and being a virgin bride. And it's, I, I know of so many people, so many who uh, I'm certain in their hearts they believe that they are good, solid, God-fearing Christians. Well, and I shouldn't, I don't want to say pretend. I mean, they, they do live in such a way that, uh, bless you, that they are trying to fulfill what they see as being righteous and holy. And often that doesn't overlap exactly with what the Bible says is righteous and holy. But they don't really want to know what the Bible says because they're more comfortable doing what they think is good and righteous and holy. And there should be no separation between what I think is good and righteous and holy and what the Lord thinks. And of course there is. There's a, a huge gap often between the two. So um, we, we tend not to think of ourselves as the adulterous bride, but scripture would indicate otherwise, that we are the rebellious son, the adulterous bride. And we have to be conscious of the fact that we are and we need a savior. We have to have a way because we can't do this ourselves. So the next section is an interesting one. Um, and you may have to read this on your own or ask your mother what it, what it means. But basically, uh, it says, if a man is maimed, he's not allowed in the congregation. And they're not talking about missing an arm or a leg. They're basically talking about missing something more important. And as far as I can tell, there's never been anyone at the door of the tabernacle to check and see if you have a functioning member. So again, what's the point? Because they're not gonna check it and see 
but it says a maimed man cannot be in the congregation unless it was a birth defect, which would be a bummer of a birth defect. Um, so it's a picture. And, and what's the picture? You know, if you can't procreate, if you have no seed, the picture is there's no life. So you don't want somebody in your congregation that can't produce life. You don't want somebody in your congregation who just comes and sits there and listens to the message and doesn't tithe and doesn't help and doesn't really even believe half this stuff. You want somebody who has the life of the Lord. You want the people who are willing to contribute to the work of the Lord, to tithe to the church, to do the work of, you know, in, in those days, the, the Levites weren't allowed to own property. So they sort of depended on us. We had to bring our tithes to the storehouse of the tabernacle. Otherwise, they didn't eat because they didn't have any land to grow their own fruit. So there was a, it, it was more important in those days than I think maybe it is today that we do the things that we need to do. We have to grow the food. We have to deal with the animals. We have to provide both the money and the, the food and, and every, we, we have to do it because they are prohibited from doing it because their job is to serve the Lord. And they were given cities to live in, but they weren't given land to live on. So there was a, you know, we, we had to be more active. And I think today there are, um, there are too many people in any congregation that, that are not, I mean, even if they tithe and do the stuff, they're, they're just not into it. They're not, they don't have that life. And they need to have the life. Now, it doesn't say what that means exactly. And, I, and I'm thinking specifically of a friend of mine who is larger than life guy. He's a big guy. He's loud. He's boisterous. You know, you, you don't, when this guy is in the hood, you know he's in the hood. Nice guy. But he's just larger than life. And he is wrapped up in every conspiracy theory there is. And his life revolves around all of these things that are designed, you know, be it evolution or the Big Bang or the Flat Earth or whatever it is that are designed to take people away from the things of the Lord. And his heart, every ounce of his heart is to get people to see that all these things are lies designed to take them away from the Lord. And, you know, it's fine. I listen to him and he has some good stuff and it's interesting. But it's, I already know the government lies. This isn't news to me. You know, I know that the world lies about everything. Well, you know, another good example of that, is, I think, is, all these people crying, if we don't do something about climate change in the next 10 years, we're doomed. We're not doomed until Jesus Christ comes. Exactly. Back. Well, these <laughs> kids these that. kids that are out there protesting now are what, 16, 18? Yeah. When I was 16 or 18, they were telling me we were doomed in 10 years because the earth was going to freeze. Yeah. Well, it didn't freeze. We're all still here. Then it went from global warming to... Yeah, because yeah, it wasn't doing that either. They're, they're yeah, I actually have upstairs. I should get it. I'll bring it next time. 
I have a chart made by some, you know, egghead society that drilled into the Arctic ice that has climate records for, they claim, which of course is completely false, but they claim for the last 425,000 years. They can record the temperature, you know, well, there are six or eight, I think, of these things. It, it has got to this temperature, and then over the next, you know, 50,000 years, it dropped down to this temperature, and then it went back up to this temperature. And so they have what they think is 425,000 years of data, and it's like this. Well, these are the same eggheads about the climate change, and they're certainly not God-fearing people. And, of course, their time frame is all wrong. But I think factually what they've got there is probably true. Over the last 6,000 years, there have probably been six or seven, you know, spikes of heat, spikes of cold. I don't know. It was just interesting that their own data it's like, is... like, you know, places that used to be lush and green are desert. Right. You know, the Earth is constantly evolving. It's constantly moving. That. Yeah. And what are the fossils they find in Alaska and Antarctica? You know, they're... Uh, elephants and giant poppies and 40-foot-tall asparagus. and You're covered like, by water. You come on. Fossils in places you least expect. Yep. <laughs> well, it does change. Climate change is correct. It sure. will change, and then it'll go back to the way it was, and life will be good. But this guy, he, he that's all he does, is, and he drives thousands of miles a week, drives all over the great north up there in his job and he has all his time to listen to podcasts and all this and that's what he does and he knows everything there is to know about every one of these things and i'm thinking okay to me that's not necessarily what the lord is asking certainly not asking me to do but this section of scripture says we are you know a person who can't bring life isn't isn't in the congregation well, this guy brings life. And I just keep thinking, you know, he's interested in things that I find interesting, but they're not, I don't have enough time to do both. So I do these because this is what I believe the Lord would have us to do. But if everybody thought the same thing, we'd never learn anything, right? So the Lord, and he doesn't say specific, all it says is if man doesn't have life, he can't be in the congregation. Well, this guy has life. I mean, he's bigger than life. You know, I have life in a different way. There are other people, you know, Lord puts things on our hearts. And as we follow through, I think the issue is, if the Lord puts things on your heart and you don't do anything about it, then that's the kind of person he doesn't want in the congregation. If you don't have life to build your congregation or to build those around you, and it he doesn't say how, you know, it could be about teaching people about all these things that they've taught you that are wrong and designed to take, you know, all the commercials and TVs and all that stuff, designed to separate you from the Lord, just like the Makash did. Okay, well, somebody needs to do that, I suppose, you know. Somebody, I think, needs to maybe talk about how, you know, what the Hebrew says and what it really meant. Somebody needs to talk about God is love all the time and because different people are going to respond to different things. And who knows? Because we can't all be teaching the same thing. So I'm thinking that's what this is all about is we don't want you in a congregation if you can't bring life to it. But he does not say how you bring life. 
So then the next section is about um, Ammon and Moab and Egypt and Edom. And it says the people of Egypt and Edom, Egypt and Edom will not be allowed in the congregation until the third generation. But the children of Adam of Ammon and Moab are not allowed in the congregation for 10 generations. And there's, you know, some dispute about why that is because all of them have killed Israelites and all that stuff. The general understanding is Egypt and Edom, while they have killed Jews, they've also helped them. You know, we were guests in Egypt for 200 years before we were slaves. Edom was good to Jacob before he was not. But Adam and, uh, Ammon and Moab have been bogus from the get-go. You know, Moab was Ammon. Well, Ammon and Moab are both children of incest, and it's, you know, it's an ugly thing. So, and I only really mention it because the Bible says uh, Moab, no one will enter the congregation of Moab for 10 generations. But it, it, it actually says no male Moabite or no male Ammonite will enter the congregation for 10 generations. Ruth was a Moabitess, and she married Boaz, and from Boaz and Ruth, we get King David, and of course, Jesus. So there are groups out there, which is the only reason I mention this, that claim that uh, Jesus, both Jesus and David are what's called a mamzer in, in uh, Hebrew, which is a bastard, an illegitimate child and they have no rights to the things that they've been awarded. So there's, there's two things I want to mention. The first one is the Bible says no male from Moab or Ammon or Egypt or Edom will enter the congregation in so many generations. So technically, Ruth is excluded from that anyway, but Ruth is the 10th generation from Moab. So she has exceeded the time frame given here and the way many people including me understand this is the lord already knows what's going to happen and he was able to see that after three generations some egyptians and some edomites wanted to be joined to the god of abraham isaac and jacob and after 10 generations some moabites and some ammonites wanted to be joined to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's why it's written that way. But no matter which way is true, Ruth is excluded from this because she was the 10th generation and she was a she. So if you ever run into those people who say, uh, David is illegitimate, therefore Jesus is illegitimate, <coughs> excuse me, they really don't know what they're talking about. And that is covered right here in this Torah portion. Okay. So it goes on to say to keep every wicked thing, to keep away from every wicked thing. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's, uh, it's in the context of when you go to battle. Keep away from every wicked thing. Because the understanding is, or the hope is, that if you're living at home, with the temple and the neighbors and the friends and all that, 
you should be able to keep away from every wicked thing. But when you find yourself going to war, it's not that way. Things are different. You're thrust into situations and conditions and that you wouldn't normally have. You don't have the tabernacle. You don't have the balance of the priests. You don't have all the things you need. <clears throat> and it becomes incumbent on you to keep yourself from doing wicked things. And again, I would suggest that while those things are true, there's a bigger picture. And that maybe is pointing directly to us. Because we live in a time and have lived in a time for hundreds of years, centuries probably, where we're not surrounded necessarily by the tabernacle and by godly people and that. And it becomes easier for us to do wicked things. And he's saying, all things aside, you, me, we need to keep ourselves from doing wicked things. And again, it goes back to if you don't know what wicked things are, how are you going to keep yourself from them? So if you don't know the word of the Lord, then whatever you think is wicked is wicked. Whatever you think is fine is fine. And that <clears throat> is not necessarily a good way to live your life. It goes on to the bring a spade and a shovel and it tells you how to, you know, you take a piece of wood and you put a nail through it and then you're making a shovel and you're supposed to carry one of those with you all the time because you need to bury your waste because there were no toilets out there. And people will say, oh, that's just ridiculous. You mean to tell me if you believe the, the Old Testament, you carry a shovel with you all the time? Well, no, I, I have a toilet. I don't need to bury my waste. But the idea is the same. You know, and again, it's this, it's, it's this idea. Well, the common sense part of it is the Lord does not want his people to be sick. And you may or may not know. I mean, they may, have, may or may not have known, and they probably didn't in those days, that human waste can, you know, it carries disease. It's not good for you. You shouldn't necessarily come in contact with it. Maybe they didn't know that. So he tells them, look, whenever you need to deal with that, then you take your shovel and you bury it pretty simple so it's not uh you know why people choose this oh you mean you carry a shovel with you all the time no i i use a bathroom thank you very much but the basic thing is god doesn't want to see unholy things and certainly a pile of poop is a good picture of unholy things right i mean it's not like it would offend him i suppose necessarily it's his stuff right he created this it's just it's the picture you don't you don't you wouldn't want it in your house why would you want it in the lord's house don't do these things that are unholy the lord does not need to see that and then it goes into this this uh fairly unusual thing about do not return an escaped servant to his owner which seems to kind of fly in the face of uh what might be right because he's just told you if the guy's camel is lost grab the camel and return it to him so but when his slave escapes not only are you not to return it to him you're to protect the slave from the owner which is kind of weird but again the, the picture i think is um we were in bondage in egypt and he set us free and no man can send us back 
And that's the same idea, I think, with, with, with this. You know, a slave, if, he's, if, the, if the slave master is doing the things that the slave master is supposed to do, the slave will not escape. I mean, he won't want to escape because he's, you know, he's, he's a slave because he needed the money. He maybe sold himself into slavery for, you know, and he only had to do it for seven years to get out of bondage or, you know, who knows what the reason was. So if the slave has left, it's either because the slave owner is not treating him as he was supposed to be treated or there's, you know, there's some other part to this story. So the Lord is saying, do not return a slave to his owner, but protect him from his owner. But again, the picture is you were a slave and I set you free and there's no man that can set you back. You're the only person that could send you back. It's a slavery. And unfortunately, a lot of people do that. Um, and I just had a little computer malfunction again. So let's see. Oh, we talk, it goes into the uh, Leverite marriage. Do not oppose strangers. Okay, do not restrain me. Okay. Then it goes into no harlots, male or female, in the camp. Duh. You know, do I, do I need to expound on that one? Um, and then it talks about interest. And it's an interesting deal. Interest, interesting deal. Um, the scripture lays out exactly who you can charge interest to and who you can't and what the situations are. And basically, the situation is if someone needs money to survive, you lend them money. It doesn't matter if they're a neighbor, uh, a stranger. It goes through all of these different, you know, in, in Hebrew, there are four or five different words depending on what your circumstance is with, with the people of the land. But none of them can be, I mean, if you choose to lend, you don't have to lend. But if you choose to lend, you cannot charge interest if somebody is borrowing because they need it. They need it to live. Then there's this whole story about if he's not your brother, you can charge him interest if the money is going for a business venture. You know, if he's going to make money on your money, you, you can make money on it. And so there's a couple of things about that that I thought were uh, unique. And one is that it's okay to make money. Obviously Jews make tons of money, but it's telling you not everyone is your brother. And in the current context of 21st century American Christianity, you're supposed to love everybody, you know, coexist with everybody. It doesn't matter who they are or what they are. And right here it's saying, this is not the only place it says this, if he's not your brother, you don't have to treat him like your brother. There are different requirements for people who do not believe the same thing you believe. So we should maybe take a little time at some point and look into some more of that. If you do take a loan or if you make a loan to somebody and they offer you collateral, it gives you strict instructions on the collateral. You can't take, and if you've read this section, it says you can't take things that they would sleep with, which sounds weird in English. But it just means if, you know, if a guy uses his cloak as a bed cover at night to keep him warm, you can't take it. You can take it, but you have to give it back to him at night so he doesn't get cold. You can't take uh, the millstone as collateral because he needs the millstone to make money. 
You know, there's a whole series of things that you can and can't do. And basically it boils down to this. If you want to lend the guy money, um, really don't bother taking any collateral because he's your brother and don't charge him any interest. If you can't lend him money or you choose not to lend him money, you don't have to lend him money. So there's this whole concept of you can lend your mother, your brother money if you want to, but if your brother is not going to assist in the work, you shouldn't give him the money. It's don't give money to people who expect you to take care of them. If they're willing to get involved with their own care, then by all means, you're obligated to help them out to the greatest extent that you can. And as a God-fearing person, you would probably want to help your brother out whenever you could. But this idea that they need to be part of the solution also is sometimes it's not the way we look at things today. We tend to give people money for anything and they don't do anything to get it. And that is uh, absolutely not what the scripture says. Uh, one of the, the next ideas it mentions is on those same lines is you can eat from the vineyard as you're walking, say, you know, three times a year they had to go to Jerusalem. So you would make a trek, and of course you probably couldn't take all the food you would need for the trek there and back with you, so you'd eat along the way. And it's not as though there were Burger Kings every mile or so. So often you would snack on the vineyards on the way by, and that is uh, not only acceptable, it's commanded that if you're a vineyard owner, you don't... Uh, Remember, you don't harvest to the edge of your vineyard and all that sort of thing. But the idea is God has provided you these, this food and, and the, the growth and the uh, 30, 60, 100 fold increase on what you've planted. So it's not really yours to worry about anyway. You need to make it available to those who are in need. So the idea is it's available to you to glean on your way or as the harvest occurs to glean like Ruth did after or with the harvesters but you have to do it it they don't pick it and give it to you they don't pick the stuff and bring it to your table you have to be involved in your own salvation as it were and the picture should be obvious about that and that goes hand in hand with this interest thing you're supposed to help your brothers when you can but if your brother is not willing to help himself, then you're not necessarily obligated to help him. Uh, it talks about keeping your vows. You should not make a vow, but if you do make a vow, be prepared to keep them throughout the term of the agreement, just as the Lord has and will for you and I. Uh, it talks about divorce. There's rules about divorce. The Bible does not approve of divorce but it does allow divorce the only technically approved reason for divorce is immorality or infidelity we would call it today but the Lord gives us directions when we do divorce and it's another one of these things uh, like the multiple wives like the 12 spies 
uh, like having a king. There's a number of things that the Bible doesn't command us to do, but the Lord does permit us. And almost invariably, it works to our detriment. He will let us do these things, I think mostly to show us that what we want is not really what we need. So it goes through a reasonable amount of uh, language on divorce and <laughs> defines all sorts of things. Uh, it tells us that we should not oppress servants or strangers. And again, that's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's as much a comment on our past life and how God has dealt with us. We were strangers and slaves in Egypt and he freed us from bondage. So we are to, in essence, return the favor. We know what it's like to be a slave. We know what it's like to be in bondage and we shouldn't want to put other people uh, in that situation. Servants can be servants, but every seven years you set them free and you don't just set them free, you, you know, you don't turn them loose with nothing. Um, there's a strict code of how you deal with servants and strict code of how you deal with strangers. And again, it's, it's all about respecting other people. And this, uh, the, the servants and strangers and a lot of these things that Moses is recapping, teaching, uh, revolve around this idea of respecting other people. Treat other people, and that's, I guess, probably where the Catholics get it, is treat other people the way we would want to be treated. We have been in bondage, and the Lord has saved us, and he's brought us out, and we should treat other people with that knowledge. Uh, it goes into the, the gleaning and the charity, which we just sort of covered. You're not supposed to uh, harvest to the edges of your field. You're supposed to go through and beat the olive trees just once, you know, for, for us city folks, we probably don't know, but you don't actually crawl up the tree and pick the olives, you shake the olive tree. It's the same with almonds. And what falls off the first time, that's your harvest. You leave the rest on the tree. And the, uh, the tradition is that a crier would go through town and say, okay, the olive trees are gonna be beaten starting at Wednesday at two o'clock, so you would know after the trees have been beaten, you could come and collect the olives that are still hanging in the tree. And again, that's just a picture of the Lord's goodness to all of us. Um, there's a section on respecting animals. You know, don't muzzle the ox as he treads your grain. He's working for you. The grain belongs to the Lord anyway. It's not, it's not respecting the animals. It's not treating them well to muzzle the ox while he's treading the grain. Let him eat because he's working for you. It's the same idea that uh, we have with people. You pay the guy when he's done that day because that guy's relying on that, that money to live and to feed his family. Don't withhold his wages. Be fair, don't overwork him. And it's just this idea of respect, um, righteous judgment. Justice with mercy, once, um, once punishment has been given, if, 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 uh, if your brother finds himself in a spot where he requires punishment, say he's stolen something or whatever the situation is, you apply this same sort of respect of persons even to the criminals. So it's, it's righteous judgment. We talked about this last week, I think, righteous judgment but it's displayed with mercy. So one of the things that's sort of unique about 
um, the Israel penal system, as it were. They weren't really jails to speak of. If you were convicted of something, you, you paid the debt or you were punished a number of ways, but typically by whipping or, you know, in the worst possible cases, you were killed. But in any of those events, once the perpetrator has paid the debt, be it physical punishment or monetary exchange, then he's your brother again. The debt's paid. He's not, he's not a you know, convicted felon, as we like to say in this country. He, he gets, I guess you might say, a new start, a fresh start. He's your brother again. And you treat him as your brother, not as a convict. Uh, no excessive punishment, cruel and unusual punishment. That's where we get that. Um, there's a discussion about the Leverite marriage and the duty of, uh, ultimately the Leverite marriages, if uh, you probably know, the husband and the wife are married, the husband dies before there's a child. Well, the husband's name would then pass with him. There would be no one to carry on his name. And, and in the Hebrew culture, and most Middle Eastern cultures for that matter, the name is very important. And the shim, the, the word for name in Hebrew actually means authority. So there's more to it than we th typically think in America. We have a name, the name's a name, you know, no big deal. But in a Hebrew country or pretty much any Middle Eastern country, your name, it's your history, it's where you live, it, it, it's, it's an important thing. So you don't want to let anyone in your congregation pass without issue or his name would die. So the Leverite marriage says that if the husband dies before there's issue, then his wife becomes the wife of the dead man's brother in order to raise up offspring, typically just one. So the name will continue. And while you should do that, you don't have to do that if you don't want to do that. And there are people who chose not to do that. And the scripture, this particular section, goes through a interesting account of what happens to the guy who doesn't do that. So there's a little, you know, there's commentary on that. And to us, the Leverite marriage might seem odd. But again, put it, it's, it's more than just the words on the page or the law that affects those people. The idea is that you're, you live forever. You're part of the community. And that's exactly what the Lord has done for us. He has provided us with eternal life and that we will be forever part of the community. So the picture, I think, is even bigger than the, uh, the reality of the Leverite marriage. Although in, in that society, there are certainly practical issues if a man died without children, the wife would be destitute and someone has to deal with the wife and take care of her. And this was a certainly a social contract. It took care of the wife and the children and all that, but it, it provided the wife with a child or perhaps children to take care of her in her old age. And there were issues that we don't typically worry about in our society today that were important. Um, there's an interesting section about rules when fighting, so if uh, two men are fighting and one of the wives gets involved to help her husband out, there is a, uh, she can help him up to a point, 
and the Bible says, or at least the King James says, she cannot grab the stones. So that, again, you, you, you know, it's even in fights and in criminal justice and when, when, when uh, the husband passes, there's this overriding uh, idea of respect. You, ha you have to respect the people. And last week, uh, we didn't get into it too much, but we talked about the punishment of criminals and even they receive uh, respect. If, if you're convicted of, say, stealing something and you're awarded four lashes or whatever, you don't just get to do that to the guy. Uh, everything goes in front of the priest at the temple. He oversees the thing. It's all done correctly. And uh, again, it's all about respect. Everybody gets respected. There's a section on weights and measures. You're to conduct your business justly, not cheat another. Uh, and the reason for that, it says, is in order that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord God gives you. You know, the Lord did not cheat us in any way shape or form and he expects us not to cheat others we in, in those days if you purchased something there everybody would carry their weights around and you could measure it out and you pay for it that way and some people were known to shave the weights so they wouldn't have to give as much product uh, which is stealing and it just leads to not it's the not respecting your fellow man. It doesn't matter if he's a Jew or a foreigner, uh, a Gentile. There are four or five classifications of people as far as the Jew is concerned, and it doesn't matter who it is. You're to treat them honestly and fairly and conduct your business without cheating in, in, uh, anyone else. Then this Torah portion ends with a declaration to blot out Amalek. And for those of you who aren't familiar, Amalek was Esau's grandson. When Esau passed, he uh, insisted that Amalek take up the cause and kill every last Jew before he died. So Amalek uh, lived his entire life that way. And Amalek is a picture, well, he was an Arab, but he's a picture of, of the Arabs, the enemies of God. And the enemies of God can't get to God, so they want to kill the people of God. And the Bible says several times that God's people will be at war with Amalek uh, for all times. It doesn't matter. There are several times when uh, the kings and the army have almost completely wiped them out, as the Lord commanded they do. But someone escaped or someone was left and... They just can't seem to get rid of this line. And of course, again, the picture is almost more important than the reality. There will always be an enemy of God. There will always be somebody who wants to kill the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he can't, so he will take that out on the people that follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I think it... Certainly, this was the declaration they were to physically do that if they could, and they never did. But the picture is for us or for anyone after that, that there will always be people out to get you. There's always going to be that enemy in the garden trying to uh, twist God's words. There's always going to be people physically trying to attack us because of our beliefs. There, 
we've talked before and, and certainly this week and last week, these people often come from our midst, it says, and in the midst of our church or our group or our whatever, the place that we would expect not to find the enemy, that's always where they come. It's easier for us to see the enemy when they're not in our midst, when they're uh, attacking us from outside, but often, like Amalek, they're our family. So uh, that is the quick and dirty section, uh, version of this. Your homework would be to read Isaiah 54, 1 through 10, which is the Haftorah section, and is a pretty cool section. And they've added Matthew 24, 29 through 51. And if you remember Matthew 24, that's uh, his answer, Jesus' answer, when the disciples ask him, can you tell us what, you know, when the end will be? And it's interesting that the last part of that is connected with this Hoftor as well. So that's what we have this week. We'll see you next week.